Everyone dreams about living an uncommon life, but how we define that dream is very different for each of us. And for most, it's a lifelong pursuit. Welcome to the Uncommon Life Project Podcast. We're going to introduce you to people who are living that life or enjoying the journey to get there. We're going to also give you some tools, tricks, and tips for starting or accelerating your own efforts to live an uncommon life, a life worth celebrating and savoring. Please welcome your hosts, Brian Dewhurst and Philip Ramsey. Hello, everybody. This is Philip Ramsey and Brian Dewhurst with the Uncommon Life Project. Welcome to the show. We got a duo cast for you today. It is the Brian Dewhurst and myself uh, getting excited about a tranche of investing that is only available for higher net worth. And this definition is called an accredited investor. So where do we start? Why is it important? And why do our listeners need to know about it? Brian Dewhurst. Good morning. The accredited investor um, uh, specification, I don't know what other word to use for it. Uh, We've been getting a a lot of questions from our clients about this lately. So we thought it would be a great time to shoot a podcast, talk about it, highlight it and break it down um, for you. So um, the accredited investor, what is an accredited investor? I think it's a great place to start. And it's a basically a term that was created by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, under Regulation D, to refer to investors who are financially sophisticated and have a reduced need for protection provided by regulatory disclosure filings. That's a mouthful to basically say it's regulation that prevents the average person with lesser money to invest in more sophisticated investments like an IPO or a company like pre-IPO. Uh, and pre-IPO means like before they go public. So one that would be like relevant would be, you know, like Uber. So if you invested in Uber before it went public, or if you were invested in Facebook before it went public. So let me just say the Philip definition, because I feel like sometimes that's helpful because sure. all that was like Charlie Brown to me, Charlie Brown's parents. <laughs> it is for a a higher net worth individual to be able to invest in higher risk stocks or investments. Now, this is only for higher worth individuals because a lot of those investments go to zero or they don't go as successful as they once would think. And so that's why you have to have higher net worth. So it doesn't completely put you in a bad pickle if you don't have as high of a net worth. So higher net worth accredited investor are for the people who have a lot of money who are okay if this doesn't go uh, to the moon. Uh, And it's okay if it goes to zero. Now, is it ideal? No. But uh, so that's why they always try to figure this out of like, well, are you an accredited investor? Because really, the investment that you're doing is going to be a little bit more risky than normal. Therefore, you have to have a lot more money if this doesn't go according to plan. Is that a decent definition? Yeah. And I think uh, the other way to explain it is if there was a spectrum, like a line of Mm. the basic line to the far right of that line would be common stock or publicly traded companies uh, like on the stock market. Those follow the regulatory authority of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. What we're talking about today is pretty much everything left of that spectrum. So Mm -hmm. 
private placements, reg D offerings. Um, if you ever hear, you know, like on shark tank, if you're watching shark tank and they're mm -hmm. like, Hey, have you guys raised money before? And they'll be like, yeah, we did a series a seed round and we raised this at this valuation. It's stuff like that. Um, where, where companies are raising money or doing, uh, some sort of capital call for investors because they're trying to fund the growth of their company. They're not under the SEC yet because they're too small and they're trying to grow and they don't want to comply with all the regulation costs and requirements that goes with being an SEC registered company. So it's kind of like everything left of an initial public offering. Mm. The other side of this is with what's happened over the internet, really, I think in just the last 10 years, is there's a lot of new platforms where you can, you know, we were kind of... Um, familiar with the term crowdfunding. You know, there was some legislation passed by the US government that made it easier to crowdfund uh, or raise money for their projects. And so there's a lot of platforms online now where you can go in and invest in pooled real estate investments, uh, pooled um, stock investments, like investing in companies pre-IPO, all these different things. But when you go to those platforms, they're gonna ask you, are you an accredited investor? And that, that is what we're kind of focusing on, I guess, more so. Today. So let's talk about the net worth of an accredited investor. I think that would be helpful, at least at this point, before we dive in any further. Sure. The, um, the requirements historically have been that you have, if you're an individual or a company, you have to have a net income or annual income, so to speak, so, sorry, uh, exceeding 200000 a year of income. If you're a joint tax filer. So that means you and your spouse, then it's 300,000 a year of joint taxable income. And that has to be over the last two years with the expectation of earning the same amount or higher, you know, moving forward. Mm -hmm. So that is the first major way you can classify. So if you don't have a very high net worth, but you've made good money over the last couple of years, you can qualify that way. The other way is a person uh, is considered an accredited investor if they have a net worth exceeding $1 million. And that doesn't include the value of the home, you know, like your equity in your home. So that's kind of the other main way uh, that you can classify as an accredited investor. Now, recently, actually last year, the um, SEC actually amended the definition of what an accredited investor was, lowering the bar a little bit. Uh, and so that law came into effect August 26th, and it says basically that uh, allows investors to qualify as accredited investors based on defined measures of professional knowledge, experience, or certification in addition to the existing test for income and net worth. The amendment also expands the list of entities that may qualify as accredited investors, including by allowing the entities that meet an investments to test an investments test to qualify. And so um, what that investment test is, is the SEC now defines that as uh, individuals have certain professional certifications, designations, or credentials, individuals who are knowledgeable employees of a private fund or SEC uh, entity, uh, registered entity, and or state registered investment advisors, which would actually be us. So we now actually qualify for um, the term of an accredited investor with just our registered investment advisory firm. So they expanded that a little bit last year. That probably doesn't, you know, make it easier for people that aren't involved in this industry. 
Um, but it did expand the qualifications um, considerably out of just the um, how much you make or how much you know net worth you have. Okay. So let's say that our listeners are now accredited investor. What access do they have to what and what investments do they now have access to that they wouldn't have before? Yes, they now have access to essentially invest in private companies um, through private placements, Reg D offerings, you know, seed round investments, um, crowdsourced or pooled real estate investments. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of stuff out there that um, people are trying to raise money um, based on this accredited investor uh, rule. And would you say that the investments that they now have access to like one would be riskier and then two have more potential of higher return for sure and i think when you look at it you know i think you do a great job of talking about uh, asset allocation and risk tolerance when you get into a higher net worth you know over a million two million five million uh, a lot of times those people have that net worth because of the wealth they've created through a private business And so, you know, when we look at the seven sources of residual income, which is kind of, you know, one of the purposes of our podcast, talking about investing in business, you know, business investments in real estate are the three main ways, you know, to build wealth, to create uh, residual or passive or passionate income. So when you look at it, yeah, I think definitely there's a lot more risk on the table. But with that, that other side of that is there's a lot more upside too. you know, and you look at the firms that we're able to invest in the seed rounds of, you know, a Facebook or an Uber or Google, some of these companies that have just gone to stratospheric, you know, valuations. You know, if you're in on the ground floor, pretty close to the ground floor of those companies, you know, your upside is so much bigger than if you just invested in the stock after it goes through its initial public public offering. One of the other things that's interesting to note is that for a long time, the stock market helped companies go public to get this capital infusion. And a lot of companies, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, they were going public with less than a one or $2 billion valuation. Now companies are going public with, you know, a valuation well north of five to 10 billion. So the, the ability to make money on that investment after it IPOs is, a lot smaller, in my opinion, than it was from obviously zero to a couple billion. You know, the percentage return when a company's a hundred million versus investing in a company that's worth 10 billion is a pretty massive shift. Mm-hmm. So getting access to that type of stuff can you know increase your returns over time. Right. And so I still think this is important to note just the percentage of actual businesses that fail. <laughs> and what would you say that number is? Because it's still applicable to these kind of companies. That's Definitely. why it's higher risk. So what's the percentages of companies that actually don't succeed? Yeah, I mean, the the average is still 95% of all businesses will fail. Uh, 95%, I think, fail in the first five years. And then <laughs> of the 5% that make it, 95% fail in the next five years. So, you know, that is, I think, age old. I think a lot of times when you're talking about these types of companies and these opportunities, you know, like your local dentist probably isn't raising money through a seed round to fund his, 
local dental office. You know, a lot of times companies that are doing this, they have founders that have done it before, uh, or they have revenue that's in excess of over a million dollars. They have a proven business model, and now they're really trying to scale. Um, this space is really too, I think the important thing to talk about is like banks don't have a lot of appetite for this space. So I think companies outgrow their local bank in some regards, right. and they, they need to raise a sizable amount of capital because the bank doesn't want to put up a loan, you know, for the business. And so this is a real extension of company growth cycle outside of, you know, your mom and pop type business down the street with your local bank. So I think once the company gets to these levels, I'm not saying that the failure rate isn't 95% for this group, because it probably certainly could be. Um, but that is kind of the bet you're taking, so to speak, of, you know, this company has some infrastructure, it has a proven track record, it has a product, it has revenue. You know, it's trying to go from one, five, 10 million in sales to, you know, 50, 100, 200 million in sales, that type of thing. Right. Okay. Thanks. That's all I got. <laughs> um, so I think the other thing we wanted to talk about is personally, I think these rules are very uh, archaic. And when you look at the counter, so I think the other important thing to talk about is like, what is the purpose of these requirements? So I'm reading this from like a website because I think it's just important to like, you know, this is more of the book answer type thing. Um, you know, the, the goal of this is to protect less knowledgeable individual investors who may not have the financial cushion to absorb high losses or understand the risk associated with their investments. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is again, all under the guise of protection, which I think sounds great. And there's a lot of bad actors in this space. There's been a lot of companies that have raised money you know, over the years and it was just a total Ponzi scheme and people's money got taken. We know those people personally that that's happened to. So I definitely think that is a massive risk. With that, um, you know, I believe that, you know, experience is one of your best teachers. And even you talk about that, you know, Philip, your bad experiences are maybe a better teacher to your good experiences. Right. And I can't tell you how many people we've talked to who invested in something. It went really well. They put in more money. It went really well. And then they put in a ton of money and then they lost all the money. And so the perfect hustle, the perfect, the perfect hustle, hustle, right? <laughs> and so that is where you need to approach this space with a plan. You know, just like anything, if you're going to invest in the stock market, or you're going to start a business, you got to have a plan. Mm -hmm. But when you look at asset allocation, like if you look at the Shark Tank type people or billionaires, they allocate over five to 10% of their overall portfolio to this space, you know, pre IPO type companies. Um, as part of their overall asset allocation, even we've talked about with our podcast on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, you know, that should be in our view, a small uh, asset allocation piece, you know, three to 5% to the average person, whether they're a credit or not, because the returns have been so substantial that mathematically it makes sense. Now, how you approach that as part of the asset allocation is kind of a different story. But what a lot of people tell us in this space, when you look at the top investors, the top venture capital funds that live in this pre-IPO space, you know, it's kind of like baseball. You know, we're looking to make 50 to 100 investments. We plan on 95% of those going nowhere, but the 5 to 10% that do, 
you know, they're looking at potential 10, you know, 10x, 100x, 1000x type returns. Right. And so the returns on those small winners are so great. It over, you know, it, uh, it makes up for the loss on the other, you know, whatever percentage, 80 to 90%. I think about that conversation we had with Matt Busick. Shout out to Matt Busick. Remember he was like doing this with investors' money? Mm-hmm. And he was like, listen, I always make all my investors invest in 10 different startup companies because eight of them aren't going to make it. But those two that make it will completely dwarf any loss that we had with the other eight. So I always remember that of like, oh, interesting. Like you're almost expected to fail in this, but the two or the one that actually makes it, you'll you'll get that rate of return. Um, so it's interesting. And, and so let's break that down one more level because I think that's important. So let's say your net worth, let's say you qualify because you're not in this industry, you qualify as an accredited investor and your net worth is a million dollars. So if we're saying that your overall asset allocation to this space is 5%, that's 50 grand if you have a million dollar liquid investable money. So, and then if you're saying, hey, you need to spread that over 10 different investments, you're talking about an investment of $5,000 or less. Right. Now, I've kind of I've kind of started playing with this um, platform called Start Engine. There's a lot of them out there. So this is not a plug for Start Engine. This is not a plug for you to do this, but um, now that we qualify as accredited investors, just because of our job, I you know wanted to kind of explore this space. And so, in looking at some of the projects available on Start Engine, again, if you meet the accredited investor definition, you can invest in some of these private companies for a minimum investment of 300, 500 bucks. So, you know, historically, when these rules were set up, it was more, hey, you got to put in 25 grand, it's illiquid. You know, companies didn't have websites. These rules have been in place for decades. This isn't something that started in the last 10 years. What started in the last 10 years is the internet has been brought to the space, which has brought the minimums down, which has brought the ability to invest in other companies down. And so it's a lot easier to invest in these platforms, real estate and pre-IPO platforms, where if you had a million dollar net worth, you can invest in 10 to 20 of these different projects and be spending a thousand to two thousand dollars per investment. Not, you know, I'm just kind of trying to make right. it tactical of like what this could look like. So it's not this scary thing where if you have a million dollars, you're putting all million dollars in it and it could go poof gone. We're not saying that. Right. But you could break down the investment of the 50 into, you know, one to five thousand dollar increments and invest in a bunch of companies as a part of an overall asset allocation and plan. Right. So I think it's so really what, important. To- when you go to that website, what did you have to do to like qualify to be an accredited investor? Click on a couple buttons and there you yeah, go. Yeah, you just like- click on a couple <laughs> buttons and you know, um, we just had a client uh, who emailed us and they said, hey, we want to invest in this private placement with this um, company here in Iowa. We know that company, they've done a lot of these. Uh, we've had clients invest in previous investments with them and it's gone really well. I'm just going to leave it that high level because, mm-hmm. you know, we're not yep. trying to promote anything today, but, um, and we just had to sign a form for them as one of their advisor team is either a CPA or financial advisor that says, Hey, this person based on all their assets is oh, an accredited investor. And we signed it and dated it as their advisor. And they sent that in with their investment, um, you know, information that the company required. 
and they invested in that project. And so um, there's just a lot of stuff that's local. There's not, it's not on an internet platform, you know, there's that stuff too. So we can help you uh, based on our relationship with you as a client, um, you know, say that you are a credit investor. But on this website, yeah, you just click a few buttons, uploaded a few documents, and I think it's interesting and probably why they can get away with that is because your initial investment can be three to five hundred dollars. Like this wasn't always the case where no, we're gonna need at least twenty-five to a hundred grand for your investment. Right. That's the smallest placement we're having. So it's like, oh boy, you know, that's a different deal. Um, but so I think that's probably why they can get away with that. I'm just trying to think through like how many people would go on there and not, you know, it's kind of like, Oh yeah, I am. Well, anyway, so it's interesting. So the part that I wanted to touch on and why I think this is an archaic model is twofold. One, because this was, this was a, you know, it was kind of the wild, wild West back in the day when there was no internet, you couldn't verify things. You couldn't double check things like maybe as easily as you could now, like there's, there's maybe a more of a need for this space. But now I think with the increments being pulled down, over time, the market corrects itself. So obviously, in the short term, things can go wrong in the market. But over the long term, the market corrects itself quite a bit. And so I think it's interesting if you think about the counter to this argument of a credit investor. Let's say I wanted to go to Vegas and go gamble. Are there any rules that is going to say, well, Brian, you can only use, you have to be an accredited investor to go gamble your money Good point. because you could easily lose. I think we we're all in agreement that if you're gambling, you could lose all of your money. <laughs> and, and so and there is no stop gap for there's that. There's no stop gap for you to walk into MGM grand or, you know, any of these casinos and literally lose all of your money. And we've all heard those stories. Yeah. Um, and I think you know a lot of our listeners have probably been to Vegas or one of these other states now that have you know gambling, and we've all seen it. We've all done it, and it's a really slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my grandfather actually had a gambling problem, and uh, it's why my parents are pretty risk averse. Um, and so, there's no rules on that. I mean, anybody could walk in a casino and lose a hundred percent of their money, not like five percent of their net worth literally everything you own, you could just walk away. There's no rules protecting you from that. So Mm -hmm. why are there rules protecting you from investing in something that could go up, you know, a hundred percent, 200 percent, thousand percent. And so I think that's really where there's a lot of talk and movement within our space that these laws need to be changed and the barriers need to be brought down or completely done away with. But when you make mistakes, it's a really good teacher. And so I think we don't want our clients to make mistakes. We don't want people to overinvest in this space, but we're getting a lot of people asking of like, hey, I'd really like to put 500 or 1,000 or start putting you know, $200 a month into investments like this. And I can't because I'm not an accredited investor, but I could go and put that money in FanDuel or you know, the NFL just signed a deal with four casinos to do bets on the NFL. I could blow all that money on betting on the NFL now and there's no rules against that. And so I think that's really where we as a society need to reevaluate uh, these rules. And are they really helping more of the people or are they actually hurting more of the people? Um, and with, with crypto and the blockchain and being able to tokenize different assets and the internet and being able to 
you know, make more information available and, and reduce the size of these, some of these investments, I think there's the case that, you know, maybe these rules aren't the way they should be moving forward. But mm-hmm. the intention is great and was great. And it sounds great, but there's, it's actually limiting a lot of people from making money in a really unique way too. So yeah, I'll leave it there. in a wise way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good point. Okay. So what was our, what are our listeners? Uh, Cause I'm sure all of them are credit investors. <laughs> what do they take away from this and how do they like really move forward? Maybe they'll just put their faith in you and then you can change all the laws. That'd be awesome, by the way. But I think you do make a really good point. I'm making a joke, but right. I, I do think that's a really good point. Like you can go in a casino and no one's asking you whatever, or you're just right. pulling the slot machines. Yeah. And I that, mean, you're basically going to zero. Yeah. The blackjack dealer is not like, Hey, I need you to sign this accredited investor form and submit your last year's of tax returns. And uh, <laughs> do you have enough liquid net worth to sustain this bet? Right. If you double right. down on this 11 here. Um, so anyways, I, I think that's really important. I think the big takeaway is that there is a whole other world of investments and there is a gatekeeper to those as it stands right now. And that is this accredited investor, um, rule and just making light of what it is. And if you want to go play in that pool that has the gatekeeper, you need to understand the barrier to entry to be an accredited investor, which is you know, 200 to 300 grand a year of income and a million dollar net worth, or you're savvy, you're in an industry or you're in an RA or somebody like you and I, right. and there's ways around it. But um, so you got to understand how that game is played. And then looking at that, of once you are able to put money into that pool, what percentage of my overall net worth do I feel comfortable with investing in things like that? Mm-hmm. And so we're saying, you know, a great place to start is always three to 5% um, at the, you know, at the max and looking at a, at a multi-year multi-investment mindset of like, I'm not going to pick one private company to invest all my money in and I'm going to hit it rich. That's basically like gambling. But if I had an approach and I wanted to invest in 10 to 20 of these over the next three to five years, as it relates to you know that percentage of my overall asset allocation, that's a better way to to strategize that. Good. So nice. Yeah. Well, I, I do feel like it's nice to know. Sometimes it's just fun to know other types of investing and in like the other side of the coin. So yeah. I do think this is valuable to our listeners. And again, like if you needed help with putting some kind of strategy together to put some kind of accredited investor investments. Uh, I think this would be, you know, something you could totally reach out to. And it's like a part of a comprehensive plan, like Brian's saying, we absolutely can help you with that. Or maybe another advisor can, but I think it's valuable. So, yeah. all right, land the plane, big dog. Yeah. And I think the last thing I would say is we look at a lot of this type of stuff uh, as part of our planning for our clients. And so a lot of times clients will bring, you know, they're getting approached with, with people that have money and assets, they're getting approached opportunity finds cash always throughout the history of the world. And so uh, we know our clients are getting hit up by other advisors, other friends, other business contacts. And we, we want to be open to that. I mean, we work with other people's advisors. We we're not like you have to do everything with us because it's a big world out there to make money. And we want you to feel open to that. But also if you want us to look over your shoulder and review some of these types of investments as part of your overall plan, we do that. And, um, 
you know, help people make, make, you know, just educated decisions. So they're not over their skis, so to speak. Um, you know, if something were to go wrong, cause we've seen plenty go wrong, you know, it all sounds great going in like, Oh, what could go wrong? Well, COVID, um, you know, <laughs> so a lot of, there's a lot of extraneous circumstances with these types of deals. And so it's a matter of making sure that investment size is small enough that if something does go wrong, it doesn't upset your overall plan. And so I think that's the, the key takeaway is we'd love to help look at that type of stuff if, if you want our help. Good. Well, you've been listening to the Uncommon Life Project. I'm your host, Philip Ramsey. And I am Brian Dewhurst. Until next time, go be uncommon. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. That's all for this episode of the Uncommon Life Project, brought to you by Uncommon Wealth Partners. Be sure to visit UncommonWealth.com to learn more about our services. Don't miss an episode as we introduce you to inspiring people who are actively pursuing an uncommon life.